Adoniram Judson, as we just briefly talked about, he had he had a very laser-like vision of his spiritual life, and it all revolved around Jesus Christ, pleasing Christ. And so my book is entitled A Supreme Desire to Please Him. Somebody asked him at the end of his life, he was back in the States for the first time after 30-plus years, um, he was speaking at a Southern Baptist convention in Richmond, Virginia, and somebody said, what motivates a missionary to suffer so long in the cause of Christ? And he, he gave a couple sentences, but the one sentence that really stands out, and I, I believe this really highlights, it, it captures the ethos, the pathos of his life, is around pleasing Christ. He said, a supreme desire to please Christ or to please him is the chief aim of any missionary and what animates him to make sacrifices for Christ on the mission field. So this sermon focuses on Psalm 24 and it demonstrates the risen, glorious, ascendant supremacy of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered at the popularity of Psalm 23? Cultures all over the world adore Psalm 23 because it brings so much comfort. But not not far in front of it, you have Psalm 22, which is one of the most explicit prophecies, statements about the crucifixion process through which Christ was going to suffer. So you have Psalm 22, the cross, and you have Psalm 23, the comforter. But where people leave off is right there, but they should go another step further. Placed there on purpose is Psalm 24, the king. And we often just stop at Psalm 23. That's great. You're comforted. But where the cross is the, the, uh, the ground of your assurance, the comforter is the experience of your assurance, and the king is the one who holds the sureness, the certainty of your assurance. That's Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is the present reality of what makes Psalm 22 good news and what makes Psalm 23 enjoyable news. Jesus said that the sum of the law and the prophets, meaning all of the Old Testament, is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the law. Jesus came to please the Father by fulfilling the law for his people. So we come to the Psalms, we come to the Bible, not just for insights for living, not just for improvement ideas for being a better Christian. You come to the Bible to see how God has saved you, all the ways you ought to be amazed at the saving work of Jesus Christ. So come to the Bible not just to ask, what can I do more better this week? But come to the Bible and ask, how can I be re-amazed? How can I be captivated once again at the amazing grace and the amazing love of God in Jesus Christ? The Psalms say, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Well, I, I do pray that we would see wonderful things in the Psalms here. 
As we look deeply at Psalm 24, let's ask ourselves, how can this help us love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? But first, before we just are given instruction for how to love him more, we first have to have a fresh sight of who he is, what he has done, and how marvelous is his power to save. Our heart's cry should be with the psalmist, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your law. So let's look for those wonderful things. Here's the main point. If you're taking notes and somebody were to ask you, if you were to walk out after the sermon, they weren't here, they were to say, what was the main point of the message? Seek the face of God, your conquering king. This is the main point. Seek the face of God, your conquering king. This psalm consists of three parts. Each part is kind of like a scene, a part of a play. It paints a different portrait of God. God is creator, is verses 1 to 2. That's the first scene. God's holy hill is verses 3 to 6. That's the second scene. And God as glorious warrior king. Warrior king is the last scene, verses 7 to 10. We'll go through those three different scenes as though they were different parts of a play, different acts of a theater play. According to Jewish tradition, this psalm, Psalm 24, was used in worship every Sunday during their captivity in Babylon. In the exile, the Jews celebrated Yahweh's kingship over every day of the week, and Sundays were exclusively set aside for Psalm 24. And, according to early Christian tradition, Psalm 24 was sung on Ascension Day, Ascension Sunday. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have interpreted this psalm as pointing to the final victory in ascension of Christ after his resurrection. So let's look at scene one. The earth. God is creator. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay, so here's the first scene. It starts by surveying the earth that God created. God owns it all. Why? Because he made it all, and he sustains it all. And in the ancient Near East, in the pagan cultures, the seas and the rivers were forces of chaos and evil in their worldview. But in Israelite usage, the unbridled waters of seas and rivers were under the dominion of Yahweh. They were not hostile, destructive forces. No, they were subdued under Yahweh's sovereignty. These two verses both have historical and theological significance. So historically, they're important because they remind us that God created the land over the waters, which he used in part to flood the earth in judgment in Genesis 6-9. But theologically, these two verses are pointing out the theological significance that what the worldly culture deems to be fearful and chaotic, whether it be seas, floods, and rivers, as in the ancient Near East, or in modern day, what the world fears the most, World War III, Antichrist, totalitarian governments, aging, illness, joblessness, 
Yahweh controls it all, and everything is under his dominion. Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian, once said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, the sovereign, does not cry, mine. Isaiah 8.12 says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So the psalm opens by showing that Yahweh is absolutely sovereign over the chaos of every age and the hostility that threatens God's people. In other words, behold your God. He's in control of everything, every beat of your heart, every blink of your eye, every dust particle that floats in the air, every twitch of a leaf, every exploding star in the galaxy. Everything is intentionally made and consciously sustained by the word of his power. And this, therefore, it begs the question, who is acceptable to the creator king? Who can stand before him? Enter scene two. The stage clears, new act. Scene two. Heaven, God's holy hill. The scene transition moves from earth where Yahweh claims dominion over everything. Everything that is untamable, distressing, ominous. And then the second scene is the hill or Mount of the Lord, Mount Zion. So the historical referent here is the hill that led up to Jerusalem, to the temple. But theologically, even as the Jews sang this while they were exiled in Babylon, and as the early Christians who no longer needed to go to temple to worship the Lord, this psalm is indeed painting a picture not of the earthly Mount Zion primarily. This psalm is about the heavenly Mount Zion. And the psalmist considers the power of Yahweh to make and control all things. And he looks up to Zion and he asks the obvious question, who can enter into the presence of Yahweh, the Holy One? The answer comes back to him that only the blameless shall enter his presence. So the psalmist asks, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And God answers from his holy hill. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, Jacob, Selah. So the Lord expects purity and blamelessness and singleness of heart from all who seek his presence. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of hands and heart is the condition for living before God in accordance to his word. Appearances of holiness are not enough because the clean hands are expressive of a pure heart just as clean words are reflective of a pure heart. Life with God in the house of God was the original goal of the creation of the cosmos. The prophets offer descriptions of this final goal, this final telos of the cosmos. 
in the closing pages of John's revelation, we see God dwell in the light of his glory with his people. The consummation of the kingdom of God is presented to us in, in John's revelation in the last chapters. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, the tabernacle of God is with mankind and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. There's this innate longing, a yearning among God's true people to dwell with Yahweh in a life soaked in, saturated in, overwhelmed by the beatific vision, that heavenly vision of Jesus Christ. And this longing is expressed in the one thing the psalmist asked for in Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked of Yahweh, that I will seek, that one thing that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. But here the question arises, well, how can that be possible? How can someone created from dust ever hope to dwell in God's presence in heaven's Mount Zion, let alone ever have the chance to meet God in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies? How is this possible for a guilty, shameful, fearful person broken by the curse ever to enter the holy presence of the Holy One and even survive a millisecond. Not to mention all this talk about dwelling joyfully in the presence of God in Mount Zion. One commentator says, in many ways, this is the fundamental question of Israel's religion and indeed of life itself was, O Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy mountain, who may ascend to the mountain of Yahweh? who may stand in his holy place. So the question then is for us, who of us can stand? What about us? Is this about what we should do to enter into the presence of the Lord? Is this instruction for us to grow in integrity so that we can just have a better relationship with God? There is certainly an implication of that in the psalm for those who are already in a legally right relationship with the Lord. But the burden of verse 3 is simply saying that the ground upon which anyone can stand in the presence of God is essentially pure blamelessness, holiness, and purity. So are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? Have you let your heart follow after things that are false and worldly, vain? Do you always speak the truth? More than just occasionally thinking about something What do you find yourself habitually daydreaming about? Are you pursuing vanity? What comes out of your mouth based on your thought life, your daydreaming, your fantasies, your desires, your aspirations, your words, your financial spending, your time management, and overall actions? Could you ascend Yahweh's hill? Are you good enough? Should we just try harder? Be better, follow the rules more. If you were good enough, what would the result be? The one whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So is this a prescription from the Lord for us just to try harder, to grow in integrity so that we can come into the presence blameless? Does the Bible teach that if we do this, we will receive righteousness? Verse 5 tells us that the man who has clean hands and a pure heart, he will not only 
ascend Mount Zion and stand, not fall, stand in his holy place. But he will also receive blessing and righteousness. And any good Hebrew who would read this psalm would remember that only 10 psalms earlier, Psalm 14, the psalmist says, there is none who does good, not even one. So the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place, he has to have clean hands and a pure heart that does not chase after the vain things of this life. But there's one problem. There's nobody who does good, not even one. There is only one, the Christ of God, who is able and worthy to ascend the mountain of the Lord, and stand in his holy place. That one with clean hands and a pure heart will receive the well-deserved blessing and righteousness of the Lord. But the psalmist, this is where the good news comes in. This psalmist does not leave us there. He does not abandon us to condemnation. Well, how do you know, you might ask? What do you mean? Well, look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who Seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So you hear what he's saying. The people who seek the face of God will receive blessing and righteousness. They who seek him have access to him on the cross. The righteousness of Christ was credited to all who would believe. And the sin of all who would believe was credited to Christ. The great exchange. The Bible more clearly explains Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified, have been, past perfect tense, have been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access, access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace is the ground upon which we stand in the presence of God. And as the writer of Hebrews said, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. What's interesting in this verse 6, the Hebrew construction In verse 6 of Psalm 24, it says, Such, or this here, is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. And then there's essentially a dash, and then it says Jacob. In other words, this is what, if it's written out in a clunky manner, this is how it would be translated. The people who seek the face of God are Jacob. Jacob was one of the names of the true spiritual people of God among ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. Jacob is, in other words, the remnant. Jacob is the remnant, those who are loyal to Yahweh. And by their faith, like Abraham, are counted as righteous. That's Jacob. They are the remnant, the God-seekers who are credited as righteous by faith in the God who rewards with blessing and righteousness. That's amazing. That is gospel. That is good news. Seek the face of God, your conquering king. So, 
Act 2 closes. Act 3 opens. Scene 3, Mount Zion's gates. And here we see in verse 7, God is the glorious warrior king. The third and final scene, which is at the city gates at the top of Mount Zion, it's the final stanza in the psalm, and it's a sudden shift of mood. The psalm started out as a mood of reflection on the greatness of this creator God, and then it moved to the contemplation of who is truly worthy to ascend the mountain of Yahweh and stand clean and pure in his holy presence. But now the mood turns to celebration. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So the term lift up your heads. It was an ancient idiom for the rejoicing of the godly. The word for gates symbolizes people collectively. What we do know literally is that Mount Zion in Jerusalem had gates and Mount Zion in heaven has gates and ancient doors open up for Yahweh, the warrior king. Throughout the history of the church, this is one of the main texts used, as I said, to commemorate the ascension of Christ after his resurrection into heavenly Mount Zion. In Christology, that means the theology of Christ, the doctrine of his ascension is by far most overlooked. More than his incarnation, more than his eternality, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his divinity, his humanity, his returning glory. By typical non-denominational evangelicals, the Christological doctrine of the ascension is most neglected by far. This is a beautiful psalm when you understand its moving parts, its moving scenes. The point of the psalm, if read messianically, should make your heart sing for joy. Let's review the movement of scenes through the psalm. It starts out, the majestic sovereignty of God. The psalm inquires who's worthy to ascend his mountain. Well, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, the reward is for the person, the man who is blameless, and he will earn divine blessing and righteousness. And for God's true remnant who seek his face, that reward is also true for them. And then exploding onto the final scene here are the gates of the city of God bursting with celebration and anticipation. This is amazing. A man, a man is ascending the mountain of the Lord. And somebody asks, a man? Yes, a human being from earth. This has never happened before. No mere mortal since the creation of the world has ever ascended the hill of Yahweh and stood blameless in his presence. The face of this man has never been seen before in heaven. The last time this person was seen on Mount Zion was 33 years prior, and he was the eternal Son of God. But now the Son of God is returning in a human body, with flesh as the son of man, the God-man. He has a new divine human name, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Messiah, Joshua, the anointed one of God. You see, Abraham ascended Mount Moriah. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Elijah ascended Mount Carmel. But no one has ever ascended heaven's Mount Zion. 
But here comes the better Adam who makes the way back to Eden. The better Ark who rescues God's people from the flood of judgment. The better Moses who delivers God's people through slavery to sin and dispenses a better law, the gospel. The better Joshua who crosses through the Jordan River and brings God's people to the heavenly promised land. The better Israel who obeyed the law of God perfectly and secured its blessings. The better David who leads the people of God to victory over the accuser. The better temple in whom the people of God truly worship. The better priest who makes true, perfect intercession for the people of God. The better Passover lamb who takes away the sin of all who trust in him. This man is God and he is with God. He is God with us. And by this man, all things were created. By this man, the story of human history was written. He governs all things. He is the melody line in the symphony of history. He is the foreground and the masterpiece of all time. He's the lead actor in the theater of God. He's the defense, the offense, the special teams, the coach, the most valuable player of the winning team. He's the father of the fatherless, the friend of the lonely, the hope of the hopeless, the strength of the weak, the husband who never leaves you, the physician who heals you, the shepherd who guides you, the liberator who frees you, and the lamb who dies for you. This is the God-man who leads his people to Mount Zion, his people who would just seek his face and trust him. Seek the face of God, your conquering king. So someone cries out from the gates of Mount Zion, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory, let him come in. Who is this king of glory? Someone asked in response. Using common scriptural descriptions for the Lord's Messiah, they respond, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, a description pregnant with messianic implications. The divine warrior Messiah is ascending the hill of Yahweh. And again, they call out in repetitive praise, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord Sabaoth, as some versions say, the Lord potentate is the king of glory. He alone can ascend the hill of the Lord. Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, he has conquered the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered through dying for his people and then rising victoriously from the dead to succeed himself as the rightful sovereign of heaven and earth, ruling as the son of God and the son of man and the son of David. Then, once this man ascends the hill of the Lord, mighty in battle, having conquered death and sin what did the king of glory do well hebrews 1 3 tells us after making a purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and ringing through the streets of the city the worshipers of the lamb saying all hail the power of jesus name angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him lord of all crown him the lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save his glories now we sing who died and rose on high who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die crown him the lord of years 
the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Now, doesn't that make your heart sing for joy? Let us address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord with all thanksgiving. And may you walk out and go through your week and say, Lord, one thing, one thing I ask from you, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the magnificence, the majesty, the excellence, the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. May this be true of us. May we seek after the Messiah, our God, our conquering king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have gospel to look forward to. We have good news, not, not new laws, new rules, because the rule keeper, rule keeper has triumphed and risen and credited to all who seek him righteousness and blessing. And it's to him we look. Would you keep us faithful in the good news of Christ all the days of our life? May we be a people who dwell richly in the gospel of Christ. Thank you for your love in Jesus. In his name, amen.